Thanks, Kylie. Good morning, everybody. My name's Tim. I'm the senior minister here at St John's, and it's great to be with you this morning. I'd encourage you to have uh, the Bible passage open, Luke chapter 19, uh, as we look at it together. I wonder if you had to think through uh, a list of your family and friends. Uh, who would be the least likely, do you reckon, uh, to become a follower of Jesus? Uh, often there's people in our minds that we think of and you think, yeah, it's hard to see how they would ever come to follow Jesus. Their uh, lifestyle maybe seems well out of step with what God would want them to do. Um, and often, either consciously or unconsciously, we evaluate people that we know uh, who don't yet know Jesus and we make a decision ourselves about how likely we think it would be uh, that they would become his followers. So we do it positively Oftentimes people will say to me uh, when they're describing uh, friends of theirs who don't know Jesus, um, you know what, they, they act more like Christians than some of the Christians I know, people say. By which they mean, you know, they're good people, they're upright people. Uh, and there's often an assumption because they're pretty good people already, their, their life is kind of lined up with the way that we think God would want them to live. Surely it wouldn't take that much for them to start following Jesus. But actually, that may not be true at all. But we also do it negatively, don't we? There are some people that we, we think would never become Christians. Maybe they're just too uh, anti-God, too opposed to him and what he stands for. Uh, maybe they make fun of the fact that we're Christians and think the whole thing is a, is a big joke or a scam. Um, and their lifestyles maybe are really out of step with the way that uh, God would want them to live. Uh, and we can't even fathom how they would go through such a radical transformation that their life would turn around uh, to be a follower of Jesus. And so we write them off. Maybe we pray for them, but we pray half-heartedly perhaps, not expecting that God would answer that prayer in such a radical way. Surely it would take too much, we think, for them to be a follower of Jesus. But actually, that may not be true at all. And this passage from Luke chapter 19 um, should challenge some of those stereotypes and some of those preconceptions that we have. Because here in Zacchaeus, uh, we meet someone who would have been at the time top of the list, first in mind that people would think of as someone who would never come uh, to be right with God, to be a follower of Jesus. And yet, in this passage, we see a radical turnaround in this man's life. Uh, it's a familiar passage to us. We've often heard the story of Zacchaeus. Perhaps kids have uh, heard it in their kids' Bibles or at uh, Kingfishers. Uh, adults, uh, you may know this story very well. And because we know it well, we can take it for granted a little bit uh, thinking about Zacchaeus. And we don't think, perhaps, that Zacchaeus was such a man who was far away from God as he was. But when we see how he's described in this chapter... Um, and understand it in the context of the time, we see that this was uh, very much the case. So we kind of get a, a bit of an introduction to Zacchaeus in verses 2 and 3. Uh, we're told, first off, that he is a chief tax collector. Now, what's so bad about that, you say? Some of my best friends work for the, work for the tax department, uh, and they're quite nice people, actually. But in those days, uh, someone being a chief tax collector was about equivalent to what we might say was a chief drug dealer today to try and get it in our minds that way. Uh, at the time, Israel was controlled by the Roman uh, Empire, so they were a nation who was subjugated to a foreign power, 
And it was the Romans, this foreign power, who were collecting the taxes, taking the hard-earned money of the people of Israel. And so the tax collector like Zacchaeus would have been seen as a collaborator with a foreign power working with the enemy uh, to rip off his own people. And at the time there were three types of taxes. There was a land tax, so depending on what crops people produced, they paid a tax on that. There was a head tax, so people just paid an annual uh, fee depending on the number of people in their household. And those type of taxes were pretty non-controversial. They were just collected by the local Jewish council, actually. But the third type of tax was a, was a custom system. And that's the type of tax that Zacchaeus was collecting. So think of it this way. Uh, every car that drives up uh, Main Street out there uh, gets stopped. You count up the value of the goods that are in the car or the truck um, work out you know, how much it adds up to, take a percentage of that and you collect it there and then uh, as a custom for travelling up the road. Um, to save themselves some administrative hassle as well, Nilambik Shire Council decides, do you know what, we'll farm this out to local business people that they can be the ones who collect the taxes. Uh, and what we want people to do is to put in a quote, um, how much do you reckon you can get by taxing the cars driving through Diamond Creek, and the person who puts in the highest bid, they get to be the one who collects the taxes. But first of all, they, they pay that money up front to the council, okay, there's their, their amount that they've paid for the year or whatever, and then they can start stopping cars and collecting the tax to earn back the investment that they've already made, plus a healthy margin. Maybe the, the modern equivalent, trying to think of a modern equivalent which gets us into the ballpark of this, is someone buying a poker machine licence. Okay? So there's a set number of licences that the government uh, distributes. You can buy a licence and once you've got it, you can start to make money uh, out of the poker machine. Uh, as poor people put their, their hard-earned cash into the slots with the odds stacked heavily against them. Uh, and as we know... Poorer people with gambling addictions are the ones who lose the most money on these machines. Uh, it's a type of parasitic and exploitative behaviour which takes advantage of other people in order to line your own pockets. And that's the sort of tax collector that Zacchaeus was. So he would have been seen stopping people as they went along the road, looking at their goods and then taking a proportion of what they had for himself. It would have been pretty much seen as robbery. And in actual fact, at the time, um, the most common terms associated with tax collector in the Bible and in other literature at the time were tax collectors and robbers, tax collectors and prostitutes, tax collectors and brothel keepers, tax collectors and sinners. You can see how they were regarded by the type of people that they were described with. They were seen as being the worst type of people in society. So Zacchaeus, as a chief tax collector, would have been regarded very, very poorly. The second thing that we read here in uh, these verses is that Zacchaeus is wealthy, which is hardly surprising given what I've already told you. In order to have won the bid to become the chief tax collector or a tax collector at all, he would have had to have lots of money to start with. But to describe him as wealthy is not to say a positive thing about him. I imagine that we would object more to a wealthy drug dealer than a poor drug dealer, wouldn't we? 
because the wealthy one is clearly um, doing better at their job, which means that they're profiting more off the suffering of others. So that would make us think that he's not a very good guy. But also, if we're thinking about how he might come into relationship with God and change his behaviour, in the, very pre- uh, the previous chapter of Luke's Gospel, Luke 18, Jesus has said that it's much harder for wealthy people, rich people, uh, to change and to come into a relationship with God than those who are poor. Jesus has said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. So here we've got Zacchaeus. His job means that he is a pretty dodgy sort of character, ripping off his own people, working with a foreign power to exploit people. He's wealthy, which means he's really good at exploiting people and taking advantage of them. And that should mean that the chances of him coming to know God are pretty slim indeed. And we know from the Bible too that Outward behaviour is a reflection of the attitude of our heart. And so Zacchaeus' problem here is not just a social problem, it's not that he's just got a few behavioural issues that he needs to work at. It's not just that people don't like him. It's not just that he mistreats people around him. Those are symptomatic of a deeper problem that he has. He's got a spiritual problem that he's out of relationship with God. He's actively disobeying and rejecting God. He's refusing to live God's way and these actions are the result. Uh, He's in real trouble, and we might wonder what hope is there for a person like this? How could they ever come to know God? But he's got one thing going for him. Verse 3 says, he wanted to see who Jesus was. He wanted to see who Jesus was. That's interesting, isn't it? Here's this hated person whose life is well and truly out of step with what God would want, and yet there is something in him seeking after Jesus, wanting to see him, wanting to know something more about him. Um, Often we don't know, do we, what's actually going on in people's hearts and what God is already doing in the lives of people, maybe even before we can see it ourselves. Despite outward antagonism to God and behaviour that might be right out of step with him, God may well be doing something in a person's heart and already drawing them to himself. Uh, I used to go to a church with a friend called uh, Meredy and she told me that before she became a Christian, she used to be the person who was most argumentative with her Christian friends and uh, most sort of angrily negative uh, to Christianity of all of her friends. And she would make it her goal to ask really difficult questions of her Christian friends, to find all of their inconsistencies, to show them how stupid their beliefs were and how it didn't make any sense, and she would push them and push them and push them. And she said all the while she was doing this, she actually really wanted them to have the answers for these questions that she was asking because she was really genuinely seeking after God and her antagonism and her anger and her questioning were really a way of trying to find what God was up to and find her way to him. And she did. And Zacchaeus obviously has something in him which is seeking after Jesus and wanting to see something more about him. 
Unfortunately for Zacchaeus, his initial attempts to see Jesus fail because uh, if there's one thing that we know from children's Bibles about Zacchaeus, he is very short and he can't see Jesus. You can just imagine him in the crowd being elbowed out of the way. People hate him and don't want anything to do with him. He's probably taking his life into his own hands by being out there amidst the crowd trying to see Jesus. And so he moves to plan B, uh, verse 4. He runs ahead and climbs up a tree so that as Jesus passes by, perhaps he'll be able to see him along the way. But you can hardly see how this is going to end well. Here's Zacchaeus sitting up in a tree. Jesus is going to be passing by with a crowd. He might be able to get a glimpse of Jesus as he goes past, but how is that going to lead to any dramatic change in his life? But in verse 5, everything changes. When Jesus reaches the spot, he looks up and he says to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So Zacchaeus has wanted to see Jesus. He's been seeking after Jesus. But we actually discover that Jesus too is seeking after Zacchaeus. And Jesus takes the initiative to find him. I don't know whether you've ever played hide and seek with uh, small children. Uh, you say, okay, go and hide. I'm going to close my eyes. You go and hide. And you're there and you count and you get up to ten. And you turn around to go and look for them and they're standing behind you and they jump out and say, surprise, I found you. They don't understand the rules. You're supposed to be looking for them and they've come looking for you. Well, Jesus doesn't understand the rules either. Uh, Zacchaeus is the bad guy. He's the guy who's... Um, living out of step with God. He's the guy who is exploiting people around him. He should be the one chasing after Jesus, trying to make it right and get back into right relationship with God. But that's not what happens at all. Jesus calls him by name, somehow knows Zacchaeus' name, calls him to come down and says, I want to come to your house today. He doesn't know the rules. And it's clear that Jesus doesn't know the rules because the crowd mutter and complain and say he's gone to be the guest of a sinner. In those days, if you went and received hospitality from someone like Zacchaeus, you were basically partnering with them in their crimes. Um, and you're breaking down the powerful um, social exclusion that would have hopefully been a preventative in people like Zacchaeus doing the things that they're doing. And yet Jesus just breaks all those rules, takes the initiative in seeking Zacchaeus and heads to his house for lunch. And Zacchaeus responds. We're told he immediately came down and gladly welcomed Jesus. Jesus took the initiative with him, but he immediately responds and says, yes, Jesus, and invites him into his home. And we see that this encounter with Jesus, whatever they talked about over lunch, whatever happened in that exchange, leads to a radical change of life for Zacchaeus. Because he stands up and he says that he's going to give half of his possessions to the poor and if he's ripped anyone off, he's going to pay them back four times what it took. This man who seems so far away from God, so out of step with the way that God would want him to live, through this encounter with Jesus, is changed and his actions change in concrete, real, costly ways. 
this sort of generosity is not prescribed by the law at the time. He just decides to be exceedingly generous and to try and make up and to change his behaviour because of what he's done. This relationship with Jesus leads to change. He cannot stay the same now that he's encountered Jesus. And so the change follows automatically and flowing out of relationship with Jesus. So here we have, in this man Zacchaeus, someone who was radically out of step with God, coming back into relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And Jesus sums it up in verse 9 by saying, today salvation has come to this house. Here is this man Zacchaeus and he's been saved through this encounter with Jesus. He's right with God. And it should raise for us and remind us of the ground of hope that there is for us and for our family and friends, especially for those who seem furthest away from God. Well, yeah, maybe you say, but isn't this just an exception to the rule? Maybe Zacchaeus just got lucky, maybe just got Jesus on a good day. No. What happens to, Je- what happens to Zacchaeus demonstrates, Jesus says, what his very mission in the world is all about. Verse 10, Jesus sums it all up and says, For the Son of Man, which is how he speaks about himself, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus is saying, My entire purpose is to come and to take the initiative with people. My entire purpose is to seek out bad people, lost people, people who have been written off by others, people who cannot help themselves and to bring them into relationship with myself. Jesus' uh, mission um, is all about seeking and saving the lost. And we see as we flow on from this passage exactly how Jesus does it. We're told in uh, verse 1 of chapter 19 that Jesus is merely passing through Jericho. He has this encounter with Zacchaeus as he's passing through town. Where's he going? Well, he's on his way to Jerusalem, isn't he? His eyes are fixed on Jerusalem. That's where he's heading. And he's going there in order to suffer, to die, and to rise again. And that is the place where his mission will ultimately be fulfilled. That's how Jesus seeks and saves those who are lost. As Jesus dies upon the cross in Jerusalem, he takes upon himself all the wrong things which we have done, and he offers forgiveness to all who trust in him. And by his resurrection, he defeats sin and death and he offers the chance of new life and new hope. That's the way that he seeks and saves the lost. He enables each one of us to have a fresh start, a clean slate. He allows bad people to come back into relationship with God. Perhaps you're here today and you're very conscious in your own life of the wrong things that you have done. Uh, Even if you've been sitting in church for a long time, maybe you still have this nagging question in your mind, would God really accept me? Would God really want to be friends with me? Could he possibly forgive these things in my life that I'm ashamed to even think of, that I'm embarrassed if people knew them, that I'd done them? Well, the message from this passage is, yes, Jesus came to seek and save the lost. Jesus came to seek and save people 
who have done wrong things, who are out of relationship with God and to offer them salvation. And Jesus reaches out and takes the initiative with you and says, I came so that you can be forgiven. I came so that you can be in relationship with God and all you need to do is to respond to the call that I offer you, the forgiveness that I hold out for you to receive and you can have it and come into relationship with me, Jesus says. That's the good news of the gospel, that Jesus came for lost people so that he could find them and save them. Perhaps you already know that truth in your own life though, that Jesus does forgive you and brings you into relationship with himself. Well, this passage is a good reminder uh, for you too that Jesus' mission is to seek and save lost people. Uh, We sing the, the hymn Amazing Grace fairly regularly and we sing the line, I once was lost, but now I'm found. And as we sing that, we celebrate and we remind each other of the fact that We were lost. Every single one of us was lost and we only were found because Jesus offered us his amazing grace and gave us forgiveness. And although we sing it, over time we can lose uh, the reality, the incredible power and beauty of that reality and it can grow colder and we can start to take it for granted that we're all lost people who have only been found by Jesus. And when we lose the reality of that, it can actually lessen our desire to see other people who are lost found. And we can start to assume that certain people are somehow out of the range of God's love. When we write these people off who we think are are far away from God, and we all do it, we forget the fact that every single one of us was far away from God. And unless Jesus took the initiative with us, we wouldn't be found. And it's very easy for us as a church to become inward-looking and to be focused on serving uh, each other, those people who are already here, rather than continuing to be outward-looking and to be aligned with Jesus' mission to go and look for lost people. Now, of course, as a church, we have both responsibilities. We need to keep building up Christian people in faith, encouraging each other to keep following Jesus and living our whole lives for him. But we also need to help people who don't yet know Jesus, come to know him too. And that's summed up pretty well in our church's mission statement, which is to know Christ and to make him known. We need to keep doing both of those things, to keep knowing Christ, to deepen in our knowledge of him, our love for him, our lives live for him. But we also need to keep making Jesus known so that people who don't yet know him can know the great truth that we know of life with Christ. Uh, Peter Corney, who used to be the minister at uh, St Hilary's Q for many years, um, once said to me that in over 30 plus years of being a minister of a church, the one thing he felt that if he ever took his foot off the pedal in church life of this thing, it would slow down um, was evangelism and mission. That that was the thing that he had to keep emphasising, keep prioritising, keep reminding people of so that we would keep taking the good news of Jesus to those who don't know him. Uh, As a church, we have some great opportunities for evangelism uh, just in front of us. Uh, With Easter two weeks away and then next term flowing out of Easter, we're partnering with other churches in the area to be 
uh, running the Alpha course. Each church is running it individually, but we're all promoting it and working together uh, to do the Alpha course, which is a course designed for people who don't know Jesus to come and explore faith and to ask questions about Christian faith. And with these things on our near horizon, it's good for us to remember that Jesus would be telling us these are good priorities for us as a church. How can I say that? Well, because the Son of Man came to seek and save those who are lost. That's his core business. And so as his followers, that should be our core business too. And one practical way that we can be preparing for this and involved in this is to pray. So I hope when you came in today you were given one of these little cards. It's a business card. Um, And on one side is the verse, which was the key verse from this passage. Uh, Jesus came to seek and save those who are lost. But on the back of the card is is just um, blank with some lines there. And what we want to encourage you to do is to write down names on the back, people who you love, people that you are friends with, people who don't know Jesus yet, but you would love them to come into relationship uh, with Jesus. Uh, And we want you to write those names down and to be praying for those people over the next few weeks. Now that seems like a small thing, a simple thing, just to write down a few names and to be praying for them. But it's actually a really crucial thing to do, a crucial step. Because by naming people and bringing them before God, we're deliberately aligning ourselves with the mission of Jesus. And we are acknowledging that apart from Jesus, people are lost and they need to know him and be found by him. But by praying for these people, I believe two things happen. The first thing that happens is that God actually does hear those prayers and starts to work by his spirit in the lives of those people that we're praying for, that God will be preparing them, softening their hearts, helping them to be seeking after Jesus in the way that clearly God had been at work in Zacchaeus, wanting him to seek after Jesus. But as well as changing the people that we're praying for, I think if we're praying, God will also be changing our own hearts as well, challenging us and spurring us on, And helping us to remember that the mission of Jesus, the very core business that Jesus was about, was seeking and saving people who are lost so that they might be found, saved and transformed by Jesus and keeping that front and centre on our agenda. So let me pray for us. Jesus, we thank you that you didn't just come to seek after good people, people who were already uh, lined up with the way that you wanted us to live, but that you came to seek and save lost people, people who'd done wrong things and were out of step with the way that God wanted us to live. We thank you for this reminder from the life of Zacchaeus that no one is too far away from you and no one is beyond your salvation. And we do pray that you would remind us of this great reality and especially for these people perhaps that we've named in our minds, people we think would never come to you, we do pray for them and uh, we name them silently in our hearts before you, asking that you would do a powerful work by your Holy Spirit to transform them and to lead them back to seek after Jesus. We pray for us as a church that we would be on about uh, Jesus' business of seeking and saving those who are lost, 
that we wouldn't lose the priority of evangelism uh, amidst the, the different things that are happening in our church life. So we pray, Lord, as we write these names down, that you would already be at work in the lives of these people who will name, working by your Holy Spirit to draw them closer to Jesus and to bring them salvation in him. Amen.